You are now listening to Sphere Chat. This week, Alex from the Department of Cellular and Molecular Medicine from the University of California, San Diego, is going to talk to us about protein modifications essential to cell survival, as well as giving us a sneak peek into what biology research looks like. This whole presentation is formatted in a way that I will be pre- I will trying to bring into perspective on the research that, you know, the typical research that academia people do. And then also when I do the presentation itself, what I'm trying to do is are we, we have this paper that we're going to publish in uh, hopefully soon. It's been going on for two years um, because there's just so much troubleshooting. We have to scratch so many stuff. It's like basically um, a, a zone that we never have nobody has ever gone through before. So that's why it's like, we had to chuck like 80% of our researchers. So it has been two years. That's why it's been so long. But um, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna present some results of the paper. But in order to present those results, I need to also also tell you guys, um, also teach you guys like what, what methods that we actually use. And hopefully with those methods, you guys get a better understanding on what, how biochemistry and molecular biology research works and how people just go about discovering how DNA works, how typical cell processes work, et cetera. So it's just going to be intro. I'm going to present a question. And then I'm going to, pre- I'm going to present a question that we try to answer in the paper. I'm going to present the methods we use to answer those questions. And I'm going to present the actual results, the very, very basic results. And then I'm just going to repeat for like three or four times. All right. Also, um, I hope, hopefully I won't say this a lot, but, um, whenever, whenever you guys want to stop me to, um, to elaborate more because you guys are interested or anything, just let me know. You guys can all hear me, right? Okay. Uh, okay. With that said, let's get started. So very based, um, on a very basic level, um, molecular biology or biochemistry everything has to start somewhere. For mathematics, it's their axioms. And for molecular biology, there's something called the central dogma. Basically, it's something set up that is definitively true. We take that as the truth of the universe. So what this is in biology is that DNA produces protein. That's it. It's literally, let me see if I can get the laser out. Let me do this sure. Laser. Okay, so basically it's DNA transcribes, trans, transcribes RNA and that RNA is translated to proteins. And DNA itself goes through a replication. So basically DNA makes protein. That's all there is to it. That's, that's the ultimate truth that people a long time ago have set up for molecular biology. And the reason, and the reason why this is important is this is like the bigger picture stuff. What we are interested in today is what happens after protein gets translated and so when protein is first made, you go, um, the cells go through something called post, those, those proteins go through something called post-translational modification. Basically, it can, the cell adds some molecules, add some protein onto it to allow, allow edit, editing its function such that, you know, you can start the protein function, you can stop the protein from functioning, you can speed it up, you can slow it down, and all that different things. So post-translational modifications in general are very, very important. So some examples are, you probably heard this in high school biology, phosphorylation, ubiquitination, and there's something very 
few, probably none of you know, um, is something called simulation. So simulation itself is also very essential, like phosphorylation, ubiquitination, it's also very essential in itself. So just a very brief example on what they are. So on the left picture, you can see what phosphorylation is. You don't have to know what these are. I don't even know what these are mostly. Um, so basically, phosphorylation is something called P. So whenever you see a protein that has a little circle with P, that means it's phosphorylated. And when and in case of kinases, when you have something that's phos when you phosphorylate kinase, it starts a cascade of other protein pathways, whatever. So phosphorylation is usually what starts a, um, a process, a cellular process from going, for example, like DNA repair, um, stuff like that. And ubiquitination, very simply, is just you have this protein, ubiquitin, you, you go through, um, the protein itself goes through um, E1, E2, and E3 enzymes, these different enzymes attach you book it into the pro to any protein honestly and then that protein gets basically gets chewed up by the proteasome. Imagine the proteasome being like the shredder, paper shredder. So the you book and test the protein and then the protein gets degraded into its amino acid conjugates and um, constituents and then it gets rebuilt into proteins again. That's all it does. So basically you book it in allows the recycling of proteins. And that's important so, because proteins don't just last forever. You kinda have to build them and recycle them. That's it kind of has a balance between there. But for simulation, it's kind of different. So both of these are huge fields with like decades of research behind them. And we basically pretty much know a lot of these things already. But for simulation, it's pretty relatively new field. It's only been around for 10 years-ish. And the, the reason why I don't have anything to show right here is because we don't really know what the major role of simulation is. We know it's important and we know it, it's involved in various different processes. So there's really no one picture to actually encapsulate what it is. So this here is just what sumo looks like. It's just that's what the protein structure looks like. Really doesn't say much. But simulation is an emerging field and um, it's very important to sell. That's all you have to know so far. So so sumo stands for small ubiquitin like modifier because originally it will, people thought it will it functions like ubiquitin. It gets tagged on protein, the protein gets degraded, but we realized no, it has more function outside of that. So Sumo is just a protein, that's all you need to know, and it's essential. And um, th for our lab, and like most labs around the world, we use a particular yeast strain called Saccharomyces cerevisiae, however you pronounce that. Um, we use that particular strain of yeast as a model organism. Why? Because first of all, it grows really fast, and it's very cheap, and it has a two basically has a two-hour dumpling time. If you want if you want to use human cells or mammalian cells in general, those have a doubling time of 24 hours. So it takes weeks before you can see your results. But for yeast, you grow them up like tonight or something and tomorrow you can start your experiment. And by the end of the day, you have all your samples ready for processing and all that. It's very fast. You can push through experiments extremely fast. That's why, that's one of the reasons why this is called, the yeast is called model organism. But most importantly, the second reason is the, this, Yeast, a simple eukaryote, has a lot of the same things that human has. So if you study a sumo pathway, you can actually use a lot of these, these the knowledge you gain from these research, and then you can use it on human cells. And then from there, you know, you can use it on animal testing and whatnot. So, yes. So, very basic. Um, so also sumo, when sumo gets uh, made in first place, it's, it, it, it itself is an immature form but um, it has to get activated in some way before it gets attached onto protein. There's a lot of different enzymes in there, but 
all, the only enzyme you guys have to know is something called UBC9. And this UBC9 is a sumo E2 conjugating enzyme. It's very essential for sumo conjugation. And previous results have shown that if you mutate UBC9 in different ways, you know, you've completely inhibited cells' ability to attach sumo onto proteins. And if that, if that ability to attach sumo onto proteins is, you know, compromised, then, you know, the cell goes very sick. So the two proteins that are kind of um, that are the focus of this paper is sumo, obviously, but most important UBC9. And what we want to know is how we want we actually want to know what um, removing UBC9 can actually do to itself. But I just want to take a step back and just explain how all this shows complexity. I just want to explain the complexity of biology. So there are millions of biological processes that keep cells alive and allow them to propagate, right? So DNA replication, DNA repair, cell division, protein synthesis, protein degradation, whatever. And if you take each of these, you can make an umbrella term of at least another dozen um, processes that fall under DNA replication. You know, you have the, your DNA polymerases, those them in itself has six classes. You have the helicases, you have the histones, hist you have all these different things. That's just for DNA replication. And with, under each of these, for example, under each of these terms, you have another dozen of these terms. So it's a very, it's a huge umbrella of just massive amount of protein. And on top of that, one protein doesn't just control one process and one process isn't controlled by just one protein. There's a lot of functional redundancies. There's a lot of overlap between different proteins. And even if two proteins are not connected in any way, um, if you, for example, if you remove one of this protein, it would somehow still, it might even affect this protein, either directly or indirectly, even if these two proteins are not connected in any way. So this just goes to show, like, not only there are there millions of proteins, millions of different processes, processes um, you also have these proteins that just overlap all these different functions. And this protein that also connects to other proteins. So basically it all comes down to how can anyone figure anything about our biology? Like if you just really think about it, how? How can you take, how can you study something that's just so complex? And I think you guys might know the answer. You just kind of break it down into simple steps. But another, Another way to show how complex biology is, is look at this mass spec data. This is a mass spec data published in our 2015 paper. You don't have to know what any of these is, but all you need to know is if the bar points up, it means there's an upregulation of that protein compared to if they, um, compared to normal cells. And down means a down regulation. So you have decreased amount of that protein. So, so if you just look at all these black bars, you have a, you have some that point up, you have some that point down, whatever. And if you look at these groups, these are all protein names from top. And if you look at this group, this is a septin protein group. This is the polymerase group, blah, 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 blah. So these are different groups of protein um, diff diff and different processes around that are important for itself. So what you can see here is one mutation for the black bar. All these data is taken from one group of uh, one set of cells. And these set of cells have one single mutation on a, on a protein. And that, on that protein, what type of mutation is on that protein? It's literally just two amino acid change on that protein. We change two amino acids on that protein and it caused this huge cascade 
change in just different protein abundances across the board for the first cell. And this just goes to show how complex biology is. So this comes back to the question, how do you take this and just actually understand it? Like, do you, how would you know? So basically, <laughs> the answer is really just smart fucking people. Like, just, you have people that are smart, people that back then that don't have any resources. They figure out ways to limit their experiments. So they do control experiments. And basically, you develop specific assays to measure something very, very specific and make only very specific and limited conclusions. For example, um, let's see. Uh, so if I want, if I'd never seen a duck before and I saw this duck on the street one day and, you know, what the hell is this animal? You don't know. So my first experiment, for example, I'll spend like two years like looking. I'm like, okay, this duck looks like this. I'm going to draw its shape. And then that will be one paper. So the duck looks like this. That's its shape. That's its color. Two years later, that will be the paper I published. And then some other lab would publish, oh, you know, what the, what's the feather, you know, what, what, what makes up the feather. And some other lab would develop, oh, how does the duck quack? How does the duck talk? How does the, no, not talk. How does the duck walk? And all that. So you just have different labs or the same lab doing different experiments on this one duck from a distance. The duck is safe. And, um, and then you're trying to understand what this duck is like. And then you can interact with it because like, like imagine, imagine you can interact with the duck. That's kind of the situation it is with proteins. You can't physically interact with it. You can't physically use the pipette to just pull the protein and be like, dude, just move or something. You have to let the cell do its work and you can only observe the side. So you have to use different methods of inhibition or excitation or whatnot to actually know what's going on. And when you do that, you can only you can only make very specific conclusions. So, and then from there, like I said, you have to use other assays to prove your discovery and to be actually credited as discovery. And that takes about one or two years, a lot of troubleshooting, and eventually you publish a paper. And then that one paper only takes like a, you know, like a very, very small, you take like a small, very, very small amount of grain of sand. And that's, that's how much knowledge you take out, out of you know, the desert that is knowledge. That's how much two years of dedicated hard work, no sleep or whatever, you just take that one grain of sand. And then you have thousands of other people spend decades just trying to take as much pieces of sand as possible. And that's biology research in a nutshell. So, and then that's basically what, what ends up in your textbooks. And that's how, why everyone knows, oh, how DNA replication works, how cell division works. Take decades of research. So it comes down to, so I want to narrow this down to what our paper is. So we established that UBC9 is very essential to add sumo onto proteins. It's basically, um, and without this process, the cell, you know, the cell dies or something. So what we want to do is, because we, we found out there's this new technique on the paper developed by a group of very smart scientists in the University of Geneva, which I'll talk about later, we want to see, okay, if we can use this, we can remove UBC9 while the cells are alive, while the cells are growing, and like all of a sudden, boom, we just yank UBC9 away from the cell. What happens to the cell? That's what we want to figure out. And this is the whole, this is basically the direction of the paper. This is what the paper actually discusses. What happens when UBC9 is removed from the cell in vivo? So, 
Uh, understandably, you need a roadmap to answer this question. Of course, I did not develop this roadmap. It was the PI. That's the job of the PI to develop this roadmap. And this roadmap changes depending on your experiment. So the first step is a very macroscopic, right? You know, how dead are the cells exactly? You know, are, are they 99% dead when you ink a UVC9? Are they like 1% dead? How lethal is removing UVC9 from the cell? Like from theoretical knowledge, we're like, oh, this cell should be all dead, right? But we still need to confirm this. And the second step was, so if that, so if theoretically removing UVC9 removes all the simulation in the cell, what, how, how much of the proteins are actually being simulated? Then again, it's just, theoretically, we know that if we remove UVC9, basically none of the proteins will be, you know, simulated as in, you know, adding a sumo onto the protein. None of the proteins will be simulated, but then again, we also need to prove this. So, and then from that step, after we do those two, we want to see what does, naturally, we know from this step, spoiler alert, the cells do die, and they die like 99.9999%. At one point, I tried to do a calculation, so it was, it was literally that dead. Cells are that dead. So, naturally, one of the first questions that arises is, if the cells are dead when you remove UBC9, what does, like, usually when the cells die, it means that they get stuck in their cell cycle. It basically means that they get stuck somewhere when they try to go from one to two. That's why they die. So the first step in knowing why they die is to look at their cell cycle progression, how they progress through the cell cycle. At which point in the cell cycle do they stop? And then from there, you know, you narrow it down even further. You want to see, is DNA replication affected? So, and then, spoiler alert, it is not. So, what, so we want to know how, you know, we want to know um, DNA replication is not affected from different perspectives. So we want to look at the replication profile at specific DNA sites, and there's different assays to do that. So instead of looking at macroscopically, you look literally at, um, a few hundred base pair of DNA. You look at this DNA and we see whether or not it's being replicated. And then, you know, another, another way to actually, another direction we want to take is, is the DNA damage checkpoint activated? So, you know, if the DNA replication is not affected, but the cells still get stuck somewhere in the cell cycle, then is it because DNA damage is being activated? That's naturally the next step we want to answer because if DNA damage checkpoint is activated, then you know, the cells do stay at one particular cell cycle and let itself fix the DNA before moving on. So, so this is the roadmap that we're going to be taking. So first step, so how dead are the cells? So I want to talk about this method that basically encompasses the whole paper which is a process called anchoring wave. So this is a method developed by a group of very smart people at the University of Geneva. And so basically what it does is you have this protein that we talked about, UBC9, and then you add another little protein, you, you tether another protein here. Sorry. What's the I'm sorry, you're not holding to you. Yeah, they, they, they took away my chair. I'm gonna do this, okay. So we have this protein in UVC. Now we tether something, another protein called FRB onto it, so it looks like this. There's a ribosome subunit that 
RCL13A, we tether another protein called FKBB12 onto here. And what happens is, since UBC9 only stimulate protein in the nucleus, which is this circle right here, when we attach, when we add rapamycin, which is just a drug, it basically um, covalently binds the UBC9 to RPL13A and gets shuffled out of the nucleus. So there are specific reasons why we, why RPL13A gets shuffled out of the nucleus, but that's a natural process of the cell that we're we're taking advantage of. The, the, our, this ribosome subunit, the ribosomes get synthesized um, separately as different subunits in the nucleus, and then it gets pushed out of the nucleus into the cytoplasm, and then it just stays there and becomes a ribosome. So we just, this is a natural process of the cell. We're taking advantage of that process to remove this enzyme from the nucleus so that as to remove all simulation of, of the cell. I've seen this picture. So, how interested are you guys in, you know, under knowing how we make the strains, and, you know, how we actually tether proteins and all that? I think it'd be cool to know. Okay. Yeah. Okay, there's one guess. So, I'll go on and, um, okay. So, I mean, if you think about putting proteins together, I mean, if we have, it sounds easy, but it's actually not because then again, because remember, we cannot physically interact with these proteins, but to use natural, the cell's natural process to actually create the protein, the, the new protein that we want. We can't, it's not like, um, we can't just put parts together like we're building something. It's not, it's not Lego. So how do we do it? We have to use the cell process. So what we do is we take, so we take the DNA sequence that synthesizes UBC9. So if we look at this, just, this is not the, this is just a plasma. Just ignore what all this is. Just imagine, so this is DNA. This is the visual representation of DNA. This arrow just represents what that sequence of the DNA um, produces, what type of protein that sequence of DNA produces. So if it, for example, if this is UBC9, we take this sequence of DNA, so we know the sequence, right? So we literally copied and paste the sequence onto a Word document. The next step is you fuse it with the DNA sequence that, that synthesizes FKB, just another tethering protein. You literally take that DNA sequence, which we know, we, you take that and copy paste onto a Word document, and then you remove the spaces in between those two DNA sequences. Now you get the new sequence that you want. That's, that's how it does. That's how it is. And then what you do is you take another, so in order to know whether or not your cell has this new protein, you need something called a drug selection marker. And I'll explain a, li a little later on how that, how you're able to tell whether or not your cell has this particular protein based on this drug selection. But you need this drug selection. So we also take this DNA sequence that produce the protein that enables the cell to digest the uh, G4, G418 drug that usually kills the cell. We take that DNA sequence, we also know, put that in the Word document, remove the spaces in between, and now you have a Word document of a new DNA sequence that contains this protein, this protein, and this gene. You take that and you insert it into an yeast chromosome. Using the, use, by cutting the chromosome, by cutting the yeast chromosome at one point, using a, a typical restriction enzyme, 
and you just throw that new de-aging sequence in there, and then you just let the cells grow, and then since you have this selection marker, you can you'll be you'll be able to select for it. But I'll explain a little how drug selection works. But if you do the same, so we do the same thing with what we did to UBC. Now we do it to the ribosomal subunit. Um, this guy I just talked about. We do it to, what we did to this. We did it to this guy. But the only difference is we use a different drug selection because we want to know if the cell has these two. So the, how the drug selection works is that if you have this particular gene in the yeast chromosome, that having that there allows the yeast to um, live because when you add these two drugs to the growth medium, the cell dies. It just kills the cell. But you have, if you have these genes in their yeast chromosome, then that allows the cell to live. So how we know whether or not these cells have the two proteins that we have is that we take the two DNA sequences that we have, we throw it into the yeast cell, and then we let the cells grow on a plate, just you know, a media plate, just stuff that allows the cell to grow that has both drugs on it. So the cells that, so the, the white stuff, the colonies that you see on the plate, whatever, the cells that you see visibly that are growing means that the cells have these two proteins. Is that, do you guys understand this? Yeah, I think it makes sense. So your drug selection mm -hmm. markers um, mm -hmm. is, yeah, so it just, it's going to only keep the ones that you want, right? It's like... Yes. Yeah, okay. Okay, so now that we have, so basically I'm just gonna visually represent represent that particular process. So so if you, for example, you wanna take this gene, you take this DNA sequence, blah, 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 blah. You take that, you have, so you take this whole thing, right? Just take whatever, um, whatever type of DNA you want that has your particular gene. It doesn't have to just have that Gene. We're gonna do. The, we're gonna select the, We're gonna select that part later. So we, you, for example, if we just take this whole plasmid, it has all the other genes that you don't even want, but it doesn't matter. That would be your DNA sample. Your primers are what the what um, DNA polymerases need to recopy um, to make new strands of DNA. So we make a primer that specifically targets this region of the DNA. So you basic. So you have that. So you. How you design the primers is literally you enter the DNA sequence that you want, you throw it up, up on a website, and then they send you the, the primers that you designed. Pretty cool. And then you, from there, you add nucleotides because, of course, you want, you know, you need building blocks to build. So the whole thing, basically, what you're doing is you're just amplifying. You're, you, you're basically doing a DNA replication on this particular gene over and over and over again. And that's something called polymerase chain reaction, PCR. So when you amplify it, so if you have one um, reference, right, you have, you go through one cycle of DNA replication, so you have two of this gene now, even though you still have this plasmid, but you have this reference, which is on this plasma, and you have another reference, which is just this gene, just floating around out in the open. So now you have two. And then after the next round of DNA replication, now that you have two references, those two reference each produce one more, so now you have four. That's 
after second round of DNA replication. And imagine doing this cycle um, 30 times or something. That's two to the power of 30. So you get, mi I think, millions or something. Millions and millions of these DNA fragments that you want. Completely, mas completely masking the fact that you only have one of this. So now that you have a huge amount of this gene that you want, so this is how it does it. Um, you take that and you just, you cut this chromosome. For example, if this chromosome is in the yeast, you cut this chromosome, you throw all these in, and you let the cell fix it because the cell has its own mechanism to fix DNA when you cut the DNA. You know, because that happens a lot, quite often when you when the cell goes through DNA replication, sometimes this whole DNA breaks and then the cell needs to fix them. So you just try kind of tricking the cell to thinking, okay, this break is normal. So you break it and then you just throw in the DNA and then the, the cells will be like, oh, we have this new piece of DNA just floating around. Let's use that to put it, fix our fix our broken chromosome. And if they do, they, you know, they now have this protein that we want to create. And that's how you create the, the cells, the strain of cells that have the proteins that you want to be able to do the experiment. So that's just a very long-winded way of saying how how you know how you actually are able to start the experiment. So when you do that, so this is the, one of the first results that we have. So naturally, the first step is okay. Now that I have a strain that dies, that theoretically dies when you, you know, when you add this drug called rapamycin, does does it actually die? So, so yeah, we, we do see it die. So basically, what this is is um, if you if YBD is just a normal plate that cells grow on, it has no drugs. If you throw anything, like literally anything, you could throw bacteria, you could throw fungus on it, it will grow. It's because it's very nutrient rich. So you have this strain that we created. And then this parental strain means that it is basically have, it has the same genes, the whatever the modifications, whatnot, this cell has, this strain of yeast has, but it doesn't have that, U, that UBC9 FRB part. It doesn't have the, it's UBC9 in this parental strain does not have the ability to be yanked out of the nucleus. So, you know, if you not, so if you grow up both on YPD, just a you know, nutrient meat rich media, you can see that they grow fine, which is what you expect because, you know, you're not removing the UBC9 yet because you didn't add the drug here. So they should just grow just fine. But when you add rapamycin in this particular figure, you can see that the cells die. Like these are different spots, uh, there's a dilution and whatnot, but like these are, these are just colonies of yeast. This is what yeast look like. So you see yeast here, you don't see yeast here, meaning that they die like very badly. So, so now that we kind of establish how dead they are, I mean, there are other experiments that we did, like we actually count how dead are the cells and by which point did, do they, you know, that we made a you know survival curve and whatnot, but that's not really important here. But so now that we know that it's dead, there's, and then we did other things to show how dead they are, we want to see what will happen if we remove UBC9. So what the what do the proteins look like now? So now that we want to specifically look at the protein of the cell, we use something called yeah. So that's a question. We use something called Western blot. And before that, you need 
Um, so the experiment actually works like this. So you basically grow the cells up. So you have this new strain, blah, blah, blah. You take the cell, you grow them up very fast. Overnight is fine. You add rapamycin to anchor away UBC9, which basically removes all intracellular stimulation. And then you just release, and then you just take an amount of cells before you treat it. And after this amount of minutes, you treat it. So as you can, you can see this, so hopefully you can see a progression of before and after, a before and after picture. And what you do is, like I said, a Western blot. So what a Western blot is, is, is ba you basically just look at what the proteins that you want to look at. So how it does this, you know, first off, you need to actually purify the protein. So this is what happens, right? You take the protein, blah, blah, blah. You take, this is this whatever string, string there it is. It's just protein. And then what you do is, a very standard method is to actually do something called electrophoresis. What it does is it separates proteins based on size. You apply your proteins here. So here you're going to add um, the before picture, what the proteins, what all the proteins that you took from the samples that before you treated with rapamycin, that will be this lane. And then, you know, 15, 30, 60, 90, 120, whatever minutes after you treated with rapamycin. So you just take, you just put the samples here, all the protein samples in these different wells, and then you just let um, this physics do its work to separate the protein based on size. Basically, you, what you want to do is you want to get a spread of protein so that you can actually look, it looks better, you know, so it doesn't just shine, it doesn't just last in your eye when you eventually look at real protein. And also allows you to actually know to identify where your proteins are. So it's just a very standard method way of really doing it. So you just separate the proteins based on size. So the so the lighter proteins is on top, the heavier proteins are on the bottom. You know, there's all the chemistry and physics of how this works. I'm not gonna say that right now. Um, so what you, and what you do is, since you just take that, you put it on something called a membrane, doesn't matter. Um, you put it on a membrane, and then what you do is you add antibodies that look for the protein that you want. In our case, we want to know what the cells look like, what the proteins that are simulated. We want to see how many of those proteins are there per lane, basically per sample. So we have a, we design an antibody that targets specifically sumo. So it will target all sumo proteins in the cell as well as the proteins that the, the other proteins that actually have sumo. So all the sumo, anything that has sumo would be, the antibody would attach to it. And then from that antibody, you have this fluoresce, you add, you let it fluoresce and whatever, and then you develop it as a film. So imagine, so basically it's like a picture. So you have, you have antibodies with chemiluminescence, you put a film on top, and then what you develop, what you see eventually, if this is a developed film, what you see, this bright band is what you want to see. In this case, for example, if this is a not, if this protein is not simulated, if this protein is simulated, if you have, you add the antibody that targets simulated proteins, this, so it targets this one, not this one. When you eventually develop it, as you can see, you can only see simulated proteins and not this one. As you, if these are the same thing, you don't see this band anymore. So basically, this is how you selectively look at the proteins that you want by using antibodies.
have I lost you guys so far? Or I have are you guys a question. Good? I don't think I understood the yeah. electrophoresis t- step. So basically, you just yeah, you're, me neither. So basically, you're separating proteins based on size. That's all. Like that's it. Um, oh, okay. And the reason why you want separate proteins based on size is because um, you can actually know what protein it is based based on you know the size of the protein. And then, um, for example, uh, if you have an antibody that targets two different proteins, right? And you run electrophoresis, you need to separate them, right? So one is smaller, one is bigger. And eventually, when you develop it, you can see one band on top, one band on the bottom. That way, you know, oh, this band on top is a smaller protein, so we know it's that other protein that we want to see. And the bigger one, the bigger one on top is going to be the one that you, also the other protein that you want to see. So size exclusion from electrophoresis allows you to identify protein. Okay. Wait, wait. So the diff, the 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 differently sized uh, proteins, they're like differently charged or something. How do they separate? Okay. So the physics on how to so basically what you do is when you take this protein, the pro- protein itself is very hydrophilic, right? Because you know it's globular and that's how it solubilizes in the cell. So what we do is we break that. We break its structure. We make it. We make it linear. And then we add something called SDS. SDS is negatively charged. So we basically, we coat this new single strand of amino acid with, with, with a negatively charged molecule. And that way, the DNA, the protein now becomes negatively charged. So it moves from negative to positive. And since, you know, if it's a smaller protein, you have a shorter string. If you have a lo- larger protein, you have a longer string. That way, you know, you, as, as you move through this, as you go through this electrophoresis process from negative to positive, you have the size exclusion. So the big ones and are on top size and exclusion the ones wor- are below. Sorry? So the big ones are up top and the small ones are below, like at the bottom. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so um, so this is like a gel matrix, right? So the gel matrix has pores and everything. Imagine imagine having um three punching back within one square meter and then having a 10 by 10 area of just like those punching bags. So, you know, you have a very dense punching bag and you ask a little three-year-old kid to run through it. He's gonna run through it pretty easily, right? Because, you know, it's, you know, punching bags are, he's smaller, he's pretty small, right? He can fit through the gaps pretty easily. But if you ask a 200 pound dude, that's only like, I don't know, 160 centimeters tall. If you try to ask him to run through it, he's gonna take some time. It's going to take longer than the smaller kid, and that's how gel. How that's just how gel, the gel matrix um, works by separating proteins. Now that you have all the linear protein, you have a short string and a long string. Now, if you have this buffer in between, you have, have this like resistance to motion in between. The smaller one's going to go through it faster, so you can see the smaller one here. The larger one's going to move through it slower, so you see that one here, and that's how this works. Okay, so if we do this and then we have the protein that we look at the, the protein that we want using antibodies, this is what we see. So zero right here, this is just a molecular weight in kilosaltons. So what you see here in this lane is 
what the cell, the simulated proteins in the cell looks like before you treat it with rapamycin, before you yank UBC9 away from the nucleus, before you remove all intracellular stimulation. This is what the protein stimulation profile looks like. And after you treat it with it, as you can see, you see a huge decrease in the amount of protein, in the, in the amount of simulated proteins in the cell. So now that you can kind of connect the two pictures, for one, we know that the cells die. So why do the cells die? Because you have a huge decrease in simulated proteins. As we all know, simulation is actually very essential for the cell. So boom. So that's another, another um, aspect of why the cells die covered. We now know the simulation profile, the simulated proteins have been depleted, basically. And this here is just as a control to show that there's equal amount of protein loading per lane. So that the, the, the brightness here and here is not due to the fact that you have way less protein here. It's due to the fact that you have way less simulated proteins in this lane compared to this lane. All right, I'm just gonna move on to the next one. Okay, so the third part is, you know, because we know the cells die and we look at the protein simulation profile, what does the cell cycle progression, you know, what, does it, what part of the cell cycle does it stop? And I think it is actually beneficial to actually take a larger step back right now, why we actually want to study simulation. First of all, we use yeast, as you guys know, because it's easier to grow and whatever, you, whatever knowledge you have in here, you can extrapolate it to human health. But what we want to study simulation is because people have discovered that, first of all, you know, we all know simulation is essential, even in humans. So we also discovered that there's abnormal amounts of simulated proteins in cancer cells. If you want to specifically look at cancer cells, cancer research, there's abnormal amounts of simulation, simulated proteins or simulation in cancer cells. Whether it's more or less, I don't know. But you see, you have this abnorm abnormality. And what we're trying to do right now is we want to take a very specific path and we want to look at, okay, what it, we want to narrow down what is affected by simulation in general. What, what was the, what's the biggest thing that's affected by a simulation that causes the cells to die? And then what, we, what people can use from this research is people can take it onto mammalian cell testing. People can take it onto animal testing and whatnot. They can look at how those models get affected. Or do we see the same thing over and over again in different, in higher and higher eukaryotes? And then people can, do, from there, when people have gathered enough understanding of this particular process, people can develop drugs for it. People can develop drugs that target simulation in cancer cells. I mean, that sounds very far-stretched because no, nobody has ever done it, but because the field itself is pretty new. But this all leads to the, um, the future ability to actually develop drugs to target cancer cells in a different way, perhaps in a, you know, easier way for, for people that are going through, you know, cancer chemotherapy, because, you know, chemotherapy is painful. It's tough. People don't want to go through it. It's difficult. So if you can develop a drug that actually targets cancer cells with like, you know, 99% efficiency, like a drug, like, like a, like, um, like antiviral medication or antibacterial medication, you know, you take it, there's really no side effects, and then, you know, 
you get better all of a sudden, then, you know, it's, that's the future of cancer research. That's how you, we want cancer to become something that's just a disease and not life-threatening something or whatever. So it all starts with looking at understanding how important cellular process work in very basic model organisms, and this is why we study this. Okay, so having said that, we want to know why this cell dies, right, in a different way. So usually when the cell dies, you know, it gets stuck on a particular cell cycle. So we want to see, okay, so does it get stuck? Or and if it gets stuck, then where does it get stuck? So brief recap. So for each particular, um, actually it doesn't really matter. So cells go through a particular cell cycle that starts with G1. You have one cell, and then by S phase is where DNA replication happens, and then by G2 that's when DNA replication finishes, and then the cell goes through other processes to begin splitting, and M phase means that cells just goes through the process of splitting, you know, telophase, anaphase, whatever. But all you need to know is G1 means that the cell only has, let's say, um, um, one copy of DNA, all right? Throughout S phase, the cells would go from one slowly to like 1.1, 1.2, 1.3, because DNA replication is going. And by G2, the cells have two copies of DNA. And then it goes to mitosis, it splits into two cells, and then it goes back. So both of those cells are basically back to G1 again. So both of them have one copy now. That's all. So that's very brief recap of each cell cycle. So in order to actually look at cell cycle progression, we do something called flow cytometry. So just before I go into what it is, the experiment. The experiment is same thing, grow cells up. Well, but what we do different here compared to previous experiment is we 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 arrest, we force all the cells to be in one part of the cell cycle in a G1 phase. We want, we want all the cells to start here because we'll, if you want to look at how the cells progress through the cell cycle in the population analysis, you need all of them to start at the same starting point. So this is what we do. We keep them at G1 of the cell cycle and then we treat it with rapamycin, whatever, and then we, we treat it with drugs. So you have one control that doesn't have drug, one control that has, and you release the cell in the, you release the cells into the cell cycle. Just you, it's like it's like a marathon, right? You you shoot a gun and boom, all the runners start running. That's basically what it is. So you keep it all in. You hit some of the runners. You don't hit some of the runners, and you just let them run. And of course, the ones that got hit probably just collapse and die from this. So that's. That's how you do a population analysis and to understand how cells, individual cells, move through the cell cycle. And then you take samples, just time intervals, blah, 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 any process. And then how you actually do this, and then you send it stain the DNA. So the staining actually works is by, if you have one copy of DNA, like we know if it's one copy means you're in G1, and then if you stain the DNA, it has like, in, I don't know, some amount of fluorescence. And then by the time it gets to G2, it has two copies of DNA, and you know it has a double amount of fluorescence. So the DNA staining is completely um, correlated to the amount of DNA it has. The more DNA you have, the brighter it shines. So what we do is literally just measure the um, DNA content per, cent, per cell and generate a chart. And to measure the amount of fluorescence in the, the DNA fluorescence in the cell, we use lasers. So if you shine a laser into the cell and it has one copy of DNA, it just, you know, it shines 
a particular brightness. It emits a particular emits laser in particular brightness. If it shines laser to a cell that has two copies of DNA, it shines brighter. And you, you know, the sensors pick that up. So you have cells that might shine like dim and cells that might be bright, dim and bright. And that's how you know whether or not one cell, one cell has one copy of DNA or two copies of DNA. And then you do that for millions and millions of cells and you generate distribution charts. This is what it is done before that. This is how it works. So, you know, you have this machine, it kind of looks like this. You put the samples here, this is where the tube goes. You know, this, you know, you have the cells that kind of just line up in here and it kind of goes, and then based on some physics and whatnot, it goes single file and gets separated. And then you have the light source, you shine, basically the laser turns on and off for each cell. It can process like thousands of samples per second. Amazing engineering right here. And then you literally take the emission spectrum of each cell as it goes through. And then this, this thing does it for like thousands of cells per second. So that's how fast it goes. And so this is what you get. So if one, so this is the cell cycle, as you know, G1, S, G2, M. And this is what the um, distribution looks like. You know, it's normal distribution because you always have going to have cells that have a little bit more, a little bit less. And most of the cells are going to be in, in the middle. But G1 cells with one copy of DNA is going to be on the lower, lower, um, smaller value of the X, X axis. And then, so if the X axis starts from zero fluorescence to like most fluorescence, of course, you have a distribution here, it refers to G1 because that refers to cells that have only one copy of DNA. Then there's a G2 peak, which means that the cells are in G2 if it shows peak here. So one peak, one C means one copy, QC means two copies. One copy, two copies. This is what a normal cell should look like. You have some cells in G1, you have some cells in G2, you also have some cells in S phase. You see how this part is not zero. That means you have some cells in S phase. This is what normal cells look like. Normal E cells, to be precise. And then what we do is we, keep, we throw all the cells in to one space, one cell cycle, G1. So you see at zero minutes, right before we release, we release the cells and let them go through the cell cycle, they're all at the same starting point for both the cells and without, <clears throat> without rapamycin and with rapamycin. So you have this. And then you release them, so 5, 15, blah, 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 blah up until like five hours, yeah, five hours. And then, so you, as you can see, you can see this progression as the minutes go by. You can see, oh, G1, but oh, it goes slowly into S phase. Oh, most of the cells are in S phase. Oh, the cells are in G2. And then cells go back to G1 because you see this peak go from small to big. And just imagine this animation moving from, from the cells go from here to here and then here. So it goes back and forth, right? Because after two, it doesn't just keep going. It just splits into two cells. So it gets recognized back here again. So, you know, you have very small G1 peak because most cells are in G2 and then boom, you have a lot of cells in G1 again and then you have cells in G2 again and then it kind of just stays like that a little bit. But And then boom, you get the same cell cycle profile as you did when you first started. That's a normal cell, right? You let the cells release from the same starting point and because each cell is different, they kind of just, you know, asynchronize themselves. So some cells go faster, some cells go slower and over time, you get this again. That's 
that's for cells that aren't treated. So this is what a normal cell should look like when you arrest them at G1 and release them. By five hours, they go back to normal. Interesting thing is here. When you remove UB SNAP from the cell, when you remove something that is essential for the cell, in, in the beginning, it's fine. So I mean, you can kind of extrapolate to be like, oh, you know, DNA replication is fine. And look at what happens. You never see this huge peak here at G1 anymore. At 120 minutes, this peak is still pretty damn short. And then, you know, here it's kind of short, but you can't, it's not a peak still. It's just a blob of some sort. And you just see this widening peak. And we know that th these cells eventually die. And if this is what their cell looks like, it means that they get stuck at G2 and they die. From this simple experiment, we can tell which part, like we know that the cell division is fine. We know the DNA goes through, DNA goes through replication just fine. And it's exactly at G2, it's when they reach G2, they get stuck, and that's because they can't get out of that, they die. That's how we know. That's how we know first. So the two conclusions you can draw from this is one, you know, DNA rotation is fine. You know, if you remove all simulation in itself, the cell can just replicate its DNA just fine. And then, but then it can't get past G2. So there's something wrong there. So now we want to, so the next, naturally, the next question is, you know, we want to prove that DNA replication is just fine. You can't just say that based on this chart. So we, you know, we have two, I'm going to describe two different ways of looking at it. We have like three or four different ways. But two of the ways I think it's going to be pretty interesting um, is next part, you know, we talk about DNA, how DNA replication is affected. And so, by the way, just FYI, you guys can stop me at any time if you want. Uh, any clarification on anything, um, or any more in-depth things on anything. But okay, so so we, we want to look at based on this, we know it, we can kind of infer DNA replication is not effective. So we want to see is it really not effective from using different methods. So it got, come, kind of goes back to my point. When you have a discovery of this, in this case, it's I mean, if you call this a discovery, you're like, oh, DNA replication is not effective when you remove all simulated simulation in the cell. We remove something that's very essential for the cell to survive. The cells can replicate its DNA just fine. That's a discovery. So we need a different angle at the discovery. We need a different method to say, okay, your discovery is actually right. So we have a different method to show whether or not that's right. So we do something called a BRDU immunoblock. Don't worry about the acronym, whatever. So we know from high school biology that DNA is composed of A, T, C, and G. So we take, we utilize this, we take the T, which is thymidine, we make a pro, a new compound called BRDU, which is literally the same compound as you can see, it's just you change this methyl group to a bromine group, I think it's methyl group, um, to a bromine group. And then what that, what that simple change does, first of all, it doesn't affect DNA replication at all. You know, the, the cells can use BRDU just fine as thymidine. It can make proteins just fine. It can act normally in the cell. But what it has an added function, what it does is that bromine group allows the attachment of antibodies. And as we learned from Western blot, that attachment of antibodies allows fluorescence. 
we can let it fluoresce. So what you can see here is when you have BRDU in this pool of um, um, nucleotides, A, T, C, and G, these building blocks of DNA, you have, if you have BRDU in there, every now and then based on, based on sheer probability, one or two BRDUs are going to be used, right? So throughout a newly synthesized strand of DNA, you have BRDU now in the newly synthesized strand of DNA. So what can, because BRDU fluoresces, you can, you're able to use this newly integra integrated BRDU to fluoresce. So what you're, what you're essentially monitoring is newly synthesized DNA. So instead of looking at the whole cell cycle, looking at the amount of copies of DNA on the very macroscopic level on like, just like, oh, you have 2,000 um, DNAs. Now you go from 1,000 DNA to 2,000 DNA. What you're looking at is, as is you're looking not at the final product of 2,000 DNA, you're looking at the plus 1,000 region of DNA. You're looking at how much DNA gets put, how much DNA gets synthesized with BRDU immunoblock. So what you do is because it's fluorescent, it's the, it is the same thing as a Western blot. So, yeah, so it's the same thing as Western blot. You grow the cells up, you arrest, but this time you have to arrest the cells because you want to monitor DNA replication, right? So you need to keep all the population, the population asset as well. You want to keep it at the same starting point and then push them through cell cycle to, and then see if the, you know, the treated cells are able to synthesize DNA just fine. So, you know, arrest the cells, you add BRDU and you add the, the, um, thermiting, um, different, um, orthlog or whatever BR, BRDU into the cell. So you can, you can let the cell integrate that into when they synthesize new strands of DNA. You release the cells into the cell cycle. Oh yeah, I forgot it at one point. You had to also add rapamycin, of course, because you want to treat the cells. You want to move on to some cellular simulation. And of course, you take time points, blah, 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 blah. You extract the DNA and you perform Western blot. You extract and purify the DNA and perform a Western blot. So this is what you get. So for G1, of course, this is just background. I mean, you see a little bit. That's probably just because, you know, nothing is ever perfect in biology. When you keep all the cells in G1, as you can see, it was a distribution, right? So you have some cells that have, if you go all the way back, you have some cells that are in S phase. If you literally split, if you have one line that defines G1 cells, you have some cells that are in S phase, right? So that's where you get the background. So that's where you get the background here. So this is what a normal cells should look like. So, you know, after 30 minutes after replication, 60 minutes after replication, 90 minutes after replication, you see, boom, you see black dots. Black dots refer to you have BRDU in the DNA, meaning that the DNA is being synthesized. Interesting thing here is if you look at plus rapamycin, you also see the same thing, meaning that this is another way to show that the DNA replication itself it's the same between the cells that are not treated and the cells that are treated. So that's the second way of actually looking at how DNA replication, DNA replication is affected. And the third thing is, you know, now we went from a big picture of using flow cytometry. We look at, oh, so the cells do go from one copy to two copies. Boom. Now we look at, okay, in another way, a slightly more narrow version of Okay, let's look at just the amount of synthesized DNA, not both old DNA and new DNA. Let's just look at the new DNA. 
and this is what the BRD immunoblot achieves. And now let's go even further. Let's go. Let's narrow down even further and look at. Okay, let's. We have specific sites, DNA sites, literally just 10 to 20 or even 100 base pairs. That that short segment of DNA. We want to look at these different short segment segments of DNA throughout the DNA, throughout the whole genome, and then we want to see. Okay, are these regions being replicated? So we go from big to small. So how do we actually do that? We do something called chromatin immunoprecipitation quantitative polymerization reaction. So it's called chip qPCR. So imagine, okay, that's just, imagine you appear, so this, you can read this, but it essentially means that, you know what PCR means? PCR just basically just amplifies whatever DNA you have. So what you're doing here is you purify the protein and the DNA with, from the cell. So the protein, you attach the protein to the DNA, you take, you yank, um, you purify this protein and DNA um, conjugate. As you can see, this yellow dot is the protein, the, the thing is DNA. You yank this away from the cell. So now in your solution, you have, only have this. And then you have some cells that have other DNA, whatnot, blah, 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 blah. You purify the, the DNA frag, the, only the DNA fragments that have this protein on it. So now you only have this protein with the DNA. And what you do is, after you purify the protein and the DNA, now you, in the solution you only have this particular segment of the DNA and this particular protein. You remove the protein and you take this DNA and you just do a PCR. You want to see what this D DNA is. And you do that by amplifying this particular sequence of DNA to see what it is. So this is what you get. So don't actually just look at the fact. So this is the um, control group. This is the uh, the experimental group. What you need to see is don't worry about what these are. These are just different regions of the DNA. So just different regions across the DNA. What you can see here is that these, if you look at the shape of what this thing looks like, and you can look at the shape of what this thing looks like, what do you see? They look the same. So, I mean, there's some error bars and whatnot, but for most, most, like, in biology, you don't really look deeper into things that are within 10, 20, even 50% difference. You want to see something that's drastic. If, you, if this is an experiment, you want to see this difference. But in this case, these two are the experiments. This is what you see. So the amount of DNA replication at the origins of replication, you don't have to actually know this is the origin. These DNA segments are the origin of replication, but these, there's no difference. So in a very narrow sense, if you look at these particular one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, if you look at these particular nine DNA segments, nine DNA regions, you don't see a, even if you just monitor those, the, the, uh, the, the DNA, the amount of DNA of that particular segment, nine segments, you don't see a difference between cells that are normal and the cells that are have that have their simulation ability yanked away because UVBC9 was yanked away from the nucleus. So this is just a third way, a more very narrow way of actually knowing that okay, DNA replication is also not affected. So now that we have three different ways, now there's a fourth way. I'm not going to go into that. But we, now we have we have three, four ways of un, of different angles cutting at this particular discovery that. We're like, oh, the DNA replication was not affected. That proves our point. That would 
convince the reader or the reviewer or whatever people that want to move on with this research that be like, oh wow, it is actually not effective. That is a that is a small grain of sand in this Sahara Desert um, knowledge of simulation. You know, we just literally figured out okay, DNA replication is not effective. That's all we figured out, but it's all that's really needed in research. And then you take that and then you have like thousands of other labs doing this different experiments and you t take that and they spend over decades. Then you get you know, what we get in textbooks. So hopefully in 20 years, we can actually know what simulation, high schoolers can actually know what simulation is in their textbook, hopefully. So the last thing we will kind of want to just for fun to look at is the DNA damage checkpoint activated. So we do that is, um, so the DNA damage um, process, the DNA damage repair, that whole thing, the repair to recombination, every, them like, them and sub, like there's huge fields with like decades of research as well. It's, it's mind boggling how much research is done, mind boggling how much protein is involved, mind boggling how, complex everything is it's just crazy and but all out of just all of this all you need to know is rat 53 rat 53 is literally just a chinese just a protein that's very important to start the dna repair mechanism just let the cell know hey i am activated that means repair your dna that's all you that's that's rat 53's job that's it so when it's not activated, RAP53 just kind of just spreads around through a nucleus. So we're going to get into a very vis, 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 visual um, segment of this particular paper. So if you look at the cell, if you look at RAP53 in the nucleus, um, when the cells are, you know, are fine, are normal, they don't have DNA damage, whatnot, the RAP53 just kind of spreads around the nucleus. But then when it's activated, it kind of just localizes it. You see a dot. So now it comes down to, you know, wait, so you're like, um, you're, you're saying how it kind of spreads throughout the nucleus and kind of aggregates in the dot. So how do you actually see this? You use something called fluorescent microscopy, something very beautiful is also people and brilliant engineers made this. You use a microscope that looks like this, right? You put your cells here, whatever, you look through here, check pictures, and then what you can get is beautiful pictures like these. Like if I think these are muscle cells by the looks of it, and the blue thing is a nucleus, so you, they color coded the blue as nucleus, green probably as organelles, whatever, um, and red as you know the cell wall or something, collagen, whatever. But you can get beautiful pictures like this. I think this is one in, I like this is this is almost a field that I actually want to go into because I'm a very visual person. I want to see wow the cells are moving. I want to see beautiful pictures. This is what you can achieve using fluorescent microscopy. So very basically, um, how it works is you have a protein that fluoresces. So it's the same thing as having UBC9. You have another thing that a protein that tethers to UBC9 allows it to be yanked away from the nucleus. It's the same process, but you create this, this, you go through the same process of creating a new strain of yeast, but this time you add something called the green fluorescent protein to the protein that you want to look at. In our case, we want to look at RAF53 because RAF53 is the best way to know visually whether another cell has DNA damage. And the inventor of GFP, I'm just going to call it GFP, it's green fluorescent protein. GFP 
it's Roger Chen is from UCSD and he won the Nobel Prize for price for it. Because of course, like if you think about it, if you like he opened a shoot, a whole new field of fluorescent microscopy, of fluorescent biology, whatever you call it, of people just using that different variants of fluorescent protein, putting on different proteins and looking at how it works in the cell, how it localizes through the cell. It opens up a huge new field and you know, it's very interesting. You're able to visualize humans are very visual creatures. And this guy, of course, won the Nobel Prize for inventing this. Uh, UCSD is from my school. So, yay, pride. Um, so you, you do the experiment, right? You do the same experiment, uh, whatever experiments you want to do. So in our case, you, um, you, take the, you take the cells, right? Um, you keep it at G1. You stuck, stuck, stuck all of them at the uh, starting line of G1. You release them. And then you want to see, okay, if the cells are treated and the cells are not treated, how are they, how different are they? You know, you know, do you get like a cloud of rapid C3 or do you get, oh my God, I see a foci or a dot of rapid C3 indicating that DNA damage checkpoint is being activated. And the answer is yes, we do see it. So this, this is just emerged. This is what the E cell looks like. It's a very, uh, I, I'm just an undergrad, so of course I can't take amazing, amazing pictures. Um, but the, and the resolution is actually terrible shit too, so um, don't blame me. Um, so this is what the, this is what a G2 E cell looks like. So we specifically pick cells that are in G2. Actually, we don't really have to, but in this case, we only pick. So this, this is cell in G2, right? So you have the nucleus here, as you can see, this little green mudge here, here. That's where the nucleus is. So you can see this for cells that do not are normal without rapamycin treatment, you get normal you know, nudges. And then when you add rapamycin, boom, you see a dot. You see a dot right there. And you know, that just shows, oh wow, the DNA damage checkpoint is active. Let me see if I have something. No, I won't. Okay. So DNA damage checkpoint has been activated. Wow. So that's that that's another discovery you can Look at. Of course, you, you know, with discovery, you can have different other angles. But in our purpose, we don't we don't want to do all those all those other angles. So, um, so if we count if we count this as a full side because it's a bright green dot and you know this smudge is not, what you see is actually a five-fold difference. Like, of course, when minus with normal cells, sometimes you have a dot, sometimes you don't because normal cellular processes you do get DNA damage on a daily basis. Like whenever your DNA goes through replication, it does have DNA damage, that's just normal. So you, of course you will see some cells with this, but with plus rapamycin, you see a huge increase in the amount of cells that have this. And what you get, how much, but how much more cells have this? You know, some cells actually have two or even three or even four, like cells, one cell will have four dots. That's how bad the DNA got. That's how much damage there are. You can actually see four clear dots. It's, I don't have a picture here, I'm sorry. But you can see very clearly four dots. It's crazy. I was, it was mind-boggling seeing this on the microscope for the first time. Um, but how much more do you actually see? If you count cells, any cell with at least one foci as, you know, cells with foci, you get five-fold increase. You get five times more cells with foci compared for the cells with Simulation we yanked, simulation ability removed versus the cells that are normal. So I kind of want to 
So that's just a very brief insight to actually, it was like two, three figures-ish worth of the paper that we want to publish for our lab. And so I just want to also take a step back again on a bigger picture to conclude. So using very using basic genetics, you know, making the strains we use, and then stuff like Western blot, flow cytometry, BRDU and mineral blot, ChIP-QPCR, we were able to come to these conclusions. First, the cells die when you remove UBC9. That's what we know. And UBC9 is an essential enzyme required to stimulate proteins. So when you remove UBC9, you move stimulation, the cell's ability to stimulate protein, and then the cells die. That means you show that stimulation is important for cells to survive. That's one point, which is pretty much well known already. Second point is you know when you the cells so that we did other experiments to know which particular phase of the cell cycle it rests in, but you know I don't want to go get into it for the purpose of this presentation. But the cells are arrested specifically in no, this is wrong. This is wrong. Late S phase and early G2 phase. So that little borderline between um, on the left and right of S between S and G2. That's where the cells get arrested in the cell cycle. And then no matter how long we let the cells try to overcome this, they never did. And they just die. You know, we actually, we just, for fun, we just leave the cells like that, let it keep growing overnight. We come back, look at the cells, boom, it's still dead. Actually, it was even more dead the next morning when we come back. So it's indicating that the cells never are never, never able to bypass this and they eventually die. And then we also know that the DNA replication is unaffected. And, okay, you know, I didn't know that. So, so DNA replication is unaffected, and the process of DNA replication is unaffected. We look at three different methods, not this one. I removed that one because it gets too much. And then we just show it's not. And then we also show that um, those other replication at specific sites are not affected. That's just a more narrowed down version of what, what this is saying, DNA replication is unaffected. And also the DNA damage checkpoint is activated for cells that have Stimulation removed in the cell. So the, the even bigger picture in his study is that what I was bringing about is um, the studies that you do on yeast in particular have, since this is a model organism and everything, everything you study can be extrapolated, not extrapolated, but it can be not even extrapolated, literally used for mammalian cell studies. So after you have this guinea pig of yeast cell because it you know, it grows up like two every two doubles every two hours, and it grows fast, cheap, and it's, you know you don't have to worry about contamination and whatnot. You grow them up, you figure out some things with ease. You're like, okay, now I'm confident enough to do the same experiment on mammalian cells because you know, of course, with mammalian cells, it's you can it's closer to humans, and you need to be able to go use mammalian cell research to eventually make it up to humans. So you know, you spend weeks waiting for the cell to grow. Be now that because you have the confidence you get from yeast cell studies, you know what you're expecting. You know what you're supposed to expect in terms of yeast. And so when you see something different in mammalian cells, you'll be like, wow, okay, there's something different, blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, you have a another whole field of just that type of research. And then from there, you know, after weeks of just waiting for one experiment to happen, you know, literally with these yeast experiments, like the experiments I show you, you finish in literally one day. Or two, if, I mean, you know, when I first got in, you have to do it in three or four days, but now I can do it in two, right? Two days is still very short, but with these ones, it actually has to take weeks. Like no matter how good you get, it takes weeks. 
And then from there, you go on to animal models. And then, you know, because you want to be confident enough in um, mammalian cell research, if things are not, you know, that doesn't have conscious, so that, you know, you feel safer when you sacrifice millions of rats to do your bidding. So you don't have a lot of rats just wasted for no reason. So you move on to animal models, right? And eventually you move on to the development of drugs. So this is all in terms of cancer studies, right? You move on because now you have enough evidence from all of what simulation is like in yeast, in mammalians, and in animals, or even like chimpanzees, to be honest. You have enough knowledge and you know, confidence to make a drug to target something or something. I don't know what you can target because we don't even know that much yet. Um, and then you take that drug, of course, now it's more of a drug developing process. You take that and you, you test down mammalian cells. And then if it works, you move on to animal tests. And if it works, of course, you go on to human trials. You know, human trials works usually for people that are, that have tried all different types of drugs and it didn't work for them. So now they're like, okay, I'm going to be a guinea pig because I'm going to die anyway. So might as well just like give me this drug and hopefully I'll live. That's how human trial usually works. And then you get FDA approval, which is basically what, what you're doing here, blah, 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 blah. You get licensing, patenting, pat patents. You sell design to pharmaceuticals. That's where you get mass production, distribution, and you then eventually becomes mainstream. So that's how what we that's how you can take something so specific, something that studies the DNA replication of yeast when you remove its simulation, something that specific. That's how you can take something that specific and and over just years of just adding it onto it, you can eventually move on to something that can actually benefit human health. And that's basic that's basically what molecular biology and biochemistry did. That's it. Wow. It was like a whole new world of um, what bio can do. Um, so I have a question, actually. So you said simulation is like very new. It's been like 10 years that people have been studying it. So after 10 years, like uh, everyone's still at the yeast studies stage? Or has there been like... Okay, so the reason... So usually it's more specific, right? Labs that are specialized using yeast they just keep using yeast oh, so right. if they yeah so like if they're specialties in simulation and yeast they just keep doing that because there's really no end to amount of things you can look at so they just keep looking at you know different ways to look at simulation and yeast and you know different enzymes and proteins blah blah blah, blah. and then just keep dishing out things for other people that are in mammalian cell research to do so you, you don't yeah you don't you don't you don't go through the whole process in one lab. Your 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 lab is usually just focused on one particular part of this whole All right. timeline. All right. Um, also, I have a question. How um, hey? how uh, I guess like reliable are the experiments? Because like I guess in experimental sciences, like lots of things can go wrong along the way because you're doing it yourself. Mm -hmm. So is yeah. is that kind of why like you do like various different experiments to kind of sh show the same thing? Yes. Yeah, so like with any experiment, with anything, honestly, there's always going to be bias. You always want you always want to be like, oh, I want this to work, or I don't want this to work because I believe something. There's always that type of bias, no matter what. Yeah. So having different angles in a way removes, or at least damp like dilute that bias as 
as much as possible. And another way um, to dilute this um, bias is to by doing the experiment multiple times. So for example, that the um, the fivefold difference that I showed here, the mm -hmm. data we got, we did a, uh, we did like, we counted 200 cells. Right. We look at individually 200 cells from four different experiments. Like one experiment is like you grow up the cells, you look at it, blah, okay. Next day or two, three weeks later, you do the same experiment, take the cells and look at it again. You can't count however many. So 200 cells over a course of four different experiments over a course of actually half a year, almost a year. Mm -hmm. And then you get the statistics and you have this, you know, error bar or whatnot. And that's how we got the fivefold difference. So that's why yeast cell studies are so important because because they grow fast, they allow you to replicate the experiment in a short period of time. It allows you to give confidence for people that do mammalian cell research to make bigger jumps and bigger conclusions. Like my professor used to say all the time, like, you know, mammalian cell research is always, there's always a bit to it, like you have to extrapolate. Like if you look at um, biochemistry, molecular biology papers, it it's like five six different experiments like like really 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 good papers are like that but if you look at mammalian cell research you only have like basically one experiment why because it just takes that long to actually get that one experiment right that's how long it takes to publish that one paper mm. uh, and then they're able to make this jump to conclusion i mean you have to take confidence in that but the reason why east cell research is so like fun is because you, you're able to make sure that you, you don't have this, you don't go to bed with the guilt, be like, shit, what if I'm wrong or something? Because you make sure that you're not wrong. Right, okay. And mm -hmm. so your lab is specialized in yeast studies, right? Or do they also do the whole pipeline? No, just yeast studies, yeah. Okay. okay. I don't think you can really find a lab that goes so, through the whole pipeline because right. it takes a PhD level to actually, and postdoc to actually specializing in even one field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Takes too many people and machines. Yeah. All right. Um, okay, yeah, go for it. Can I ask you a question not really related to your presentation? Like, yeah, sure. Uh, just like, why did you decide to study molecular biology? Okay, so it's a funny story, actually. So when I got into USCSE, I got an undeclared, right? Um, I was pretty, so I want to get into bioengineering. So I'm a bioengineer at this point. So um, so it's a completely different thing. Bioengineering is more human physiology, right? So you're building, you're making circuits and whatnot. I can talk about that if you guys want everyone. But I, don't, I don't think I know that much, either, actually. But I, I'm a bioengineer, but I also do this. So I... So I got into this lab based on basically luck. So I was the first year I was undeclared. I was like, I need it. I want to go into science. That That's all I know. I want to go into science or engineering, one of them. And so I, I applied and I got into this lab. And so I've been there almost three years. And honestly, like, I I loved it because they the first day they're like, okay, you're going to do experiments right now, all right? You're going to contribute. You can contribute to this paper. I don't care. You I came. I don't even know how to pipette when I first got it. That's how bad I was. Like this guy was like pipette one one gram for me. I'm like shit. How do I do that? Like, so I was like very slowly, but it was hilarious. I didn't know, but they were like they just throw me in there like fucking learn, freaking freaking learn. Be there at midnight. Be there until four a.m. And no, no, they don't actually tell you to be there, but you know you kind of have to be there until four a.m. Some sometime here and there, you spend so much time there. And then you just learn. But the more you learn, the more you realize you have to play even more time. So 
I was just lucky to get into this lab and they gave me the opportunity to actually do research rather than most labs actually when you get in, they just let you do one thing, right? You know, make plates, make media, do that for a year or something. No, when I got in, boom. Of course, I'm going to have to make plates and make media, but like, well, after you do that, do research and then you learn along the way. So they force you to learn. And because I love the process of learning and uh, after understanding what research is like from being in a place where it's like three of the smartest people I ever met and just understand, you know, going through the process of learning in classes in bio, bioengineering, taking classes in bioengineering and talking to the professors there, talking about their research, understanding what research is like in engineering, bioengineering specifically in molecular biology, biochemistry, that comes down to, you know, now I decide what I want to do. I like small molecular research. I like dealing with stuff that's smaller. I don't like dealing with animals because I feel like that's too sad. I don't want to kill animals. Um, but I also don't, I also want to do something that related to human health. I also want to do something related to instrumentation. So most likely for my PhD, I want to do something, I want to do mass spectrometry actually, that targets that is related to human health. Do you hope to be the next Roger Chen of no. UCSD? So like, no, 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 no. So, I mean, I mean, at, at first I kind of thought that way. I mean, everyone is guilty. It was not a serious question. It was not a serious question. Oh. No, but it's, it sounds great. It sounds great. You seem very passionate about uh, what you're studying. That's great. Yeah, I am. Um, my question uh, is... So, like, what's the next step now that you figured that it doesn't um, affect cell replication? Like, are you, is it like is the next step to kind of like still keep digging as to like why it doesn't affect it, or to look at like where it does affect if it's not this part? Yeah. So you know, you have different theories. You have different models. Hello. You use different. Brings me back to the reason why we have to chuck eighty percent of our studies and research because oh, it took out. that long. Like you, yeah, yeah, we cut out eighty percent of our research. And no, we no, 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 you cut like out your that, like you, you lost connection. You froze for a second, so oh, I missed yeah. the first bit of the sentence. Yeah. Oh, I, I was saying um, eighty percent. Like we had to chuck eighty percent of our percentage because we had different models of what it was like. Mm. Like the, the the timeline that you just saw was because was. The, basically the right model that we assumed to be right. But before that, there was like 10, 20 other models that we tested and it didn't right. work. Okay. So it's just just trial and error, honestly. Okay. But the next step is usually, it, this is definitely a PI's job. And since I'm not a PI, I actually don't know how. But basically, I think that just is, you know, you publish this paper, you get through your reviews. The reviews are people that are not in your, like, it's going to be less biased than you. Right, so like, like give you like new insights, whatnot. You eventually fix some stuff. You publish a paper, then you go into re then you just read the literature on what what other people have done. You just keep reading. That's what that's the job of here. Just keep reading, and you're like, huh. After reading like one two hundred papers, nobody has addressed this specific question before, so I want to address it. Right. That's how you develop a new direction, and it has if you want to make it similar to what built up. Um, what you want to study, you also have to read literature because you have to. You don't know if I take the next step in this research. I want to make sure nobody else has done it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so this like a review phase now, sort of. Yeah, basically. Okay. Sit down and think phase, the philosopher phase. Yeah. What you call it? 
um, can can this type of research on protein be used, uh, for example, like the development of vaccines, or does it have nothing to do with the field? Oh yeah, you, um, protein definitely because um, during quarantine, um, actually the lab, our PI doesn't care, so we still went to the lab with still did our research. <laughs> um, but the lab next to us, they do structural biology, so basically they look at the structure of the stuff. And they're considered essential because they were one of the they're one of the groups that contributed to finding this the, the shape of different protein sizes, um, the structure of the proteins and of the coronavirus. Actually, you know that's what it specialized in. So basic biology allows you to do stuff like this, but it's not like oh you have one lab that discovered the structure of the virus. You have different labs. You have one lab that develop, that looks at one particular pro cellular membrane protein. The other lab that looks at I don't know, just what it looks like on the outside, whatever. You have different labs doing the same thing, different things same for the same goal to in order to actually know, okay, that's what the coronavirus looks like. So yes, you can use the same methods. A lot of these methods can be used for vaccine research. A lot of these can be used for human health research. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's very flexible. Yes, it is. And honestly, like my PR used to actually not he says it all the time, like um, the reason why a lot of these big projects like stem cell research fail, the reason why they fail because, um, I guess he is biased, right? I, I won't, won't take his words for but like what he said was basically, they don't really have good basic and good basic is good understanding of the basic biochemistry and biology of how stuff works, how proteins, how you purify proteins and you know, how proteins work and DNA and whatnot. You had stuff like that. The stem cell research is the reason why he says stem cell research fails because they make too big of a they make too big of a jump to conclusions. That's why. Okay. His word. <laughs> so, is research in bio like uh, purely experimental, or are there, is there also more like theoretical research? What, what do you mean by theoretical? Like, um... That's maybe, what hypothesis are for, right? Uh, yeah, or maybe kind of just, like, working with, like, uh, simulations and, like, statistics or, like, working on, like, probability distributions to kind of, like, get to conclusions this way. Like, statistical Oh, yeah, um, so... Or... So basically, it's dry lab work, right? You're, like, computer stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, there is. There's a whole field called bio, bioinformatics for, yeah. um... It, for us, um, bioengineering is like four paths. One of the paths is bioengineering, bioinformatics. So you learn engineering, you learn human physiology, you also learn computer science. So what they do is they take data. They take data from different um, research. They kind of compile it, trying to find a trend, and people use that trend to do what lab research to prove that that trend is correct, whatnot. So yeah, there is a there is a whole field of just bioinformatics of people just trying to find trends or using. computer science using program. Hello. You remember? Oh, you're back. Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, speaking yeah. of which, oh. can I, can I, mm -hmm. I kind of related actually, uh, there was a study. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, no, it's not a study. So a few years back, uh, so on World of Warcraft, I think, uh, yeah. There was uh, this bug 
uh, in like when the players had to fight a very powerful boss. That, so it's supposed to infect players and slowly kill them, but it's made for very high level players. But uh, mm-hmm. there was a bug in the program, I guess. So the players could actually mm-hmm. carry the disease out of the high level dungeon and it oh, spread wow. out to all the low level players who then instantly died. And the whole game became like a graveyard. And it actually, uh, a lot of scientists actually got very interested in it because uh, it was like a, kind of a perfect model to simulate how disease like epidemics uh, oh, yeah, spread. That just reminded me of that. Uh, you should really ch- like check out this study because it's actually very, very interesting. And I think they were actually supposed to um, partner up with scientists to uh, for something. But uh, in the end, they decide... Uh, not to use players as science experiments, which which is a shame. <laughs> but uh, oh, definitely check it out. It's really really cool. Yeah, yeah. That's um, that's. I think that's more on the side of uh, public health and virology research. That's more um, looking at. That's more on the public, like public policies and stuff. It's uh, yeah. It's not. It's very different from like biochemistry, molecular biology. But yeah. That's also one part I'm actually really interested. In. I actually want that's another part that I'm concerned is virology stuff. You know? So that's also one thing I'm really interested in. Yeah, I'll, I'll go look it up. Thank you. I didn't know that. This was Alex talking about protein modifications for the cell's survival, as well as giving us a preview of what biology research looks like from the University of California, San Diego, for Sparrow. Feel free to visit us at sfera.live.